This lecture is brought to you by Knox Theological Seminary on iTunes U. Knox is a seminary in the tradition of the Reformation that exists to educate men and women to declare and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that this teaching will be beneficial in your Christian life and ministry. First of all, about the work of the Holy Spirit. We talked about sanctification, and of course, sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit. Justification, in a way, is the work of the Holy Spirit. And we need to uh, look at this because the Holy Spirit is essential to uh, our experience of God and therefore to our understanding of salvation. I mean, how does this work? First of all, of course, uh, our understanding of the Holy Spirit is rooted in how we see his relationship to the Father, to God the Father, uh, and to God the Son. Uh, to the Father's uh, work of creation uh, and uh, redemption, to the Son's work of creation and redemption. Uh, the Father and the Son work together uh, for the salvation of, uh, uh, of God's people. Uh, and it is the Holy Spirit who applies this in practice to our lives. Now, I like to say, this is my word for this, and you can um, take it as, as this, that he is our contact point with God. Uh, this is how we come to know God. Uh, Bible verses to support this, John uh, chapter 14 and verse 20, where Jesus says, when the Comforter comes, when the Holy Spirit comes uh, to dwell in you, the Father and I will come with him. Uh, we, and we will dwell in you with him. Galatians 4, 6, which I quote all the time, uh, you know, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Um, uh, you know, th this, this is how we, how we come into contact with God. So what the Holy Spirit does is fundamental to our understanding of what we receive uh, from God. The first thing that we have to realize is the Holy Spirit does not add um, anything uh, to the revelation which we have already received. The Holy Spirit does not um, add to the creation, for instance. He doesn't produce things in us uh, which are not there uh, uh, with respect to our creation. And this is important to understand because some people like to get the idea uh, that uh, if you become a Christian, somehow, if you aren't turned into a better person, particularly, or a higher sort of quality of person, that somehow you might be protected against the problems of this world. I mean, you get people who say that, you know, if you're a Christian, you should never get sick. Or if you're a Christian, you should, you should, be, you should have lots of money, the so-called prosperity gospel. Um, the reality, of course, is uh, that Christians are no different from anybody else. I mean, you cannot say because someone is, is ill uh, that they uh, have sinned or that they're not a Christian. I mean, this has nothing to do with it. Uh, it has nothing to do with being rich or poor uh, or anything like this. Um, in terms of suffering, uh, if anything, I mean, you can't really say anything, is make a definite a statement about this, but uh, it happens in, in so many cases uh, that people who never had any problems in their lives before, uh, you know, become Christians and all of a sudden there's trouble. 
why is there trouble? Well, because their relationships with other people um, are, are upset. Uh, you know, if you become a Christian and, and nobody around you is, is one, um, your way of thinking changes, uh, your way of behaving changes, and this can cause problems. Um, I mean, the number of people who, uh, who find that, uh, you know, if they become a Christian in, at work, you know, when, they beca- when they're working, uh, and all of a sudden, um, you know, they start thinking and acting in ways that, um, you know, are unusual, like the, the more punctual, more honest, more whatever it is. I mean, this can cause resentment and sometimes can cause trouble. Um, uh, you know, if they become whistleblowers or something like this, um, the, you know, it's, it's not necessarily as straightforward and easy and wonderful as it sounds. Uh, you can find that d- different things happen. I mean, it doesn't always get to the kind of extreme um, that uh, I remember once a friend uh, who was Jewish, she became a Christian and she was thrown out of her house. You know, her parents threw her out because they, you don't become Christian. Um, and, and she had to, you know, she suffered. She had to suffer for this. When you change in this way, it can have effects that at first sight you don't imagine. You know, the cost of conversion, uh, even in our relatively free society, can, can be quite high. Um, you know, and, and it's sometimes more difficult because it's not so obvious. I mean, if you know from the start that you become a Christian, you know, you're going to suffer because it's against the law or something like that, you might not make the, take the plunge, but at least you know what you're letting yourself in for. If, on the other hand, it's a more subtle, uh, you know, question of sort of social exclusion or something like this, um, that's... Uh, very much harder to deal with and very much harder to predict in advance. Uh, And I think we need to be aware of this because in our preaching and teaching of the gospel, very often this is the kind of thing that people have to face, uh, you know, and you just never know um, what's going to happen. Uh, I remember some years ago, um, we had a man, this wasn't a conversion, but he was training for ministry, and, uh, well, I mean, as far as I could see, he was, seemed to be a fairly normal kind of person uh, and all that. But uh, as it got nearer the time, we discovered, he, you see, in our church, you, you cannot be ordained if you are in debt. Uh, if you have a mortgage, that's different. But if, you're in de- if, you, if, you, have seri- if you have debts, uh, you have to pay them off because otherwise the bishop is responsible for your debt. So... They went through him, and he was he was in debt to huge what I thought was a huge amount of money, because he'd owned a company, you know, and he was trying to get to sell off the company, and you know how complicated that can get. And but then it got really very complicated because um, a lot of his assets were tied up in things like vintage cars, and you know, yeah, I mean, he'd spent money on you know all kinds of crazy things. And, and, he, and he never really thought about it. Uh, but he had to sort out his whole life, you know, to sell these things, to get rid of these things. And, and, um, and I remember going through this with him at the time and thinking, you know, this is, this is a real change of, of life uh, that, he, that he had to uh, consider. And uh, he'd never really been challenged on this point before. You see, and it's the kind of thing, because of the, what it's like, it is, 
I mean, there is no book, there's no sort of guideline to this. You just, you only find out when you're in investigating with individual people. And you just don't know what the sort of, you know, hidden history is of, of, of people, what, you know, what's in their background, what, uh, what kind of commitments or, or mixed up situations they've got themselves involved in that they then have to get out of, um, you know, when, when they're converted. And, and what sort of line they, they should take because there isn't always one easy solution for everybody. Uh, you know, one rule that uh, applies across the board. I mean, the very famous case, for instance, of Augustine, St. Augustine, when he was converted, uh, he had a concubine, he had a son uh, uh, who was like a teenager at the time. And what do you do? Well, of course, nowadays, you would say, well, marry your concubine, you know, make an honest woman of her sort of thing. But in those days, um, you, you, the concubine was of a lower social class uh, to him, and so he couldn't really marry her. It was socially unacceptable. So he had to let her go, which was very difficult. I mean, they'd been together for like 16 years or something, you know, a long time. But he kept the son. I know. And... I mean, nowadays, you see, now we, we sort of look at this and say, oh my goodness, you know, if this happened, we would never make, we would never advise him in this way now. Uh, well, probably not. Um, but he himself tells us, you see, in his story that how difficult it was. I mean, he didn't want to do this um, particularly. I mean, but, but he found that he had no choice. You know, the, his, um, uh, his change of life demanded this kind of um, kind of thing, and he tells the story in his confessions of how hard it was for him to readjust his life. You see, uh, in, in this particular way. So there's a very famous example, uh, you know. But uh, but there are many like this. I mean, this is not um, uh, an unusual thing. It happens all the time. Um, but, you know, we have to remember this, that the Holy Spirit deals with these things. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't give us an exemption uh, from having to face the consequences of our life. Uh, you know, he, 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 he works in us uh, in order to deal with the circumstances and, and cope with the problems to, to uh, introduce us, as it were, to spiritual warfare. Uh, because he is the one, of course, who, uh, who conducts the spiritual warfare in our lives. Uh, and this is really what he, what, one of his functions, that uh, instead of um, you know, giving us a kind of life to which we're not entitled, just because we become Christians, he, uh, he takes the, the gifts that, that God has provided, generally, the, you know, the, the provisions which God has made for us, and applies them to our lives. Um, this is the wonderful thing, you see, that, uh, that God works internally in our hearts and minds um, in a way which is customized, if I can use that word, uh, to our own needs. And, um, uh, you know, the fantastic thing about being a Christian is that we're in touch with, uh, with everything and everybody, uh, who, you know, in, in everyone in the church, we all have the same Holy Spirit. There is only one Spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism and so on. But the Holy Spirit is, is such that, uh, you know, he can, uh, he can deal with each one of us uh, within our own individuality and take us from where we are to where he wants us to be. Uh, and he doesn't 
uh, as I say, uh, make a big fuss of this. I mean, he doesn't sort of broadcast his presence and so on, but he, um, he shows us more clearly what God wants in our lives. He also shows us how the work of the Father and the Son ho hang together. Um, uh, he, gives us, he gives us a coherent picture of the universe uh, and of the world. And this is also, I think, something very important. Um, it's something that is, is not always remembered today or even understood uh, by people who think of Christianity and th think of Christian faith as an experience. Um, you know, you go to a meeting, you get all worked up, and um, you start, you know, singing along, and everybody gets gets in the spirit, sort of thing, um, and and you have this kind of exp uh, kind of uh, good time together. But the idea that it should change your way of thinking um, uh, and your whole sort of perception of life is is slower sometimes to to take root. And I think this is important because people whose minds do not change um, are not truly converted. I mean, they may have, uh, you know, some kind of experience. They may go to church, but uh, there's something in the way they think which isn't um, isn't right. Um, I mean, you see this, for example, uh, today uh, in uh, the whole gay rights thing. Um, because you get some people, you know, who claim to be Christians, who claim to be even clergy and so on, um, advocating, you know, gay marriage and so on for themselves and what have you. And you wonder, you think to yourself, well, have they not understood, you know, what creation is, uh, what the, you know, how God made the world, what he intended, uh, you know, how he... Uh, how he puts these things right in our lives, and there's a whole dimension here of morality, of um, of just plain objective common sense, which doesn't seem seems to have passed them by. You know, they just haven't applied uh, it to that aspect of their lives. Now, I mean, it's easy, of course, to to point that out, but that's something that happens is happening in, right now in our time. If we look back. Um, in, in history, uh, of course, it's not difficult to find people, uh, people who accepted slavery, for instance. And we think today, how could they have done that? Um, you know, as Christians, but they did. Um, you know, they didn't, they, they didn't make the connection. Uh, or in the time of the Industrial Revolution, people who accepted in, injustice uh, for workers. Uh, you know, I mean, some of they were hiring like five-year-olds to work 12 hours a day and this kind of thing in factories. Um, how could they do that? Um, you know, but they did. Um, and, and so it goes, you know. I mean, you can, from different places, different times, you can always find some aspect um, of life where uh, people professing Christian faith uh, were involved in activities that uh, if you stand back from it and look at it, you think this is not right. Um, you know, how could they do that? Uh, but uh, the only solution to this, I think, rather than run around condemning them, um, especially when they're long dead, I mean, there's no point doing that, but is to remember ourselves that 
the Holy Spirit, one of the Holy Spirit's tasks is to form the shape, the mind of Christ in us, so that in every aspect of our thinking and acting and doing, we are thinking from a Christian standpoint, from a Christian worldview. And this may be the biggest problem that we face in the world today, you see. Um, are we adding a kind of spiritual experience to secular life, like icing on a cake or something like this? Or are we presenting an alternative uh, way of thinking that um, uh, changes everything, you know, that, that just changes the whole, way, the whole way we look at things? And I, I think we need to think this one through very carefully because at the present time, uh, it becomes an issue in, in terms of freedom of religion. Uh, you see, for a long time, freedom of religion was understood basically as freedom of worship. Uh, but this was because the society in general shared the same essentially Christian values, you know. And I mean, freedom of religion meant that Catholics could be Catholics and Methodists could be Methodists and Lutherans could be Lutherans without being interfered with. Well, that's all right, because different though they are, they're not so different uh, that you know, they have a, a completely different attitude, uh, outlook on life. But if you then add into the mix secularists, atheists who have no such principles, Muslims who think in a completely different way, Hindus, uh, I mean, who knows? You know, you start adding in all these other things. Freedom of religion takes on a different uh, aspect. Uh, and you see this. I mean, I always say that to people in this country, um, there isn't really freedom of religion for Muslims because Muslims believe in polygamy. And a Muslim man in this country cannot marry four wives. It's unconstitutional. Now, at what point are we going to get, um, you know, some great court case over this, um, that a Muslim man has four wives because this is his religion? And, and it is. I mean, you can't, you know, it's not something he's made up in order to have four wives. I mean, it's not like these people who go to jail and say that their religion demands, you know, champagne and caviar. This is, it's not this. I mean, it is a genuine religious belief which goes back many centuries. Um, but it's not tolerated. And, and, and what would happen in this case, you see, if, if this was sort of brought to court? I mean, who would, how would this be, be decided? Or if you were a Hindu, for instance, and you had a cow, and you let your cow wander everywhere, because this is what your religion um, says, you know, it's a sacred cow. Well, you laugh. You think this is funny. Um, when I was teaching in London, this actually happened. Um, to, yes, because uh, the, the college where I was teaching, we had a, we had a grazing field. It was, it was an old farm. And we used to let it out to a local farmer, and he used to bring his cows, a herd of cows, uh, there. And one night, the cows were there, and they, they escaped they were through a hole in the fence. And they were found down in the local sort of village area, down at the bottom of the hill, all gathered together, wondering what on earth to do. And somebody said, well, who owns these cows, you see? And, and the word went round, oh, well, they come from a college up on the hill. 
And so what sort of college is that? We don't know, it's something religious. And so of course the police immediately think, you know, religious college, have a herd of cows, must be Hindus. And uh, well, you know, I mean, they put two and two together and that's what they got. And they were scared to death uh, to touch, they would want to touch these cows, uh, you know, for fear of launching a religious riot. Um, so they eventually, uh, because in London, I mean, there are Hindu, lots of Hindus. I mean, it wasn't as if this was impossible. So uh, eventually we sorted out saying, no, 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 we're Christians. You, you know, you can slaughter the cows if you want, as far as we're concerned. Um, <laughs> but sell them off to McDonald's. Um, but, um, uh, you know, it, it raises this sort of question because to what extent can freedom of religion be tolerated when it involves a completely different worldview? And the, the, of course you cannot, and the, an, the, the only answer in the end is to relativize all religion uh, and say you have a secular society in which religious values are, uh, are not um, uh, recognized uh, officially for the common life of the society, which functions on a completely different basis. But then if the secular society uh, has rules like, well, like gay marriage, for instance, you see, um, all right, you as a Christian believer uh, or a Christian church probably don't have to celebrate this kind of thing. I mean, if you know, two, two men or two women come along and want to get married in your church, you probably have the right to say no. That would be freedom of religion. Okay. But um, if they are, they are employees, you know, what would happen? Uh, if, for example, somebody here at Knox Seminary was, you know, an employee and it then contracted one of these marriages, uh, could you dismiss them on that basis? Because it's the law. I mean, it's legal. Well, it's not legal yet here. But if you know, if it were, if it were legal, I mean, could you could you take action against them for doing something which is, after all, legal? Now, I mean, this sort of thing sounds extreme, um, but believe me, it's not. You know, um, I mean, I know of cases. Well, in England, certainly, um, of people who are taking the church to court over this. You know, the church has decided, will dismiss people in this, kind, in this situation because they say it's incompatible with our beliefs. But if the people concerned are not clergy, you know, they, I mean, it might be the, the, the janitor who works in the building or something. I mean, it could be anybody, but some, someone who is not um, necessarily a member of the church. I mean, they might be a member of the church, but not by, uh, by uh, employ, uh, employment. You know, they could be anyone. Um, what sort of control do you have over their life? And, and what can you do in this sort of situation? And the, in this way, of course, Christians are liable to find that they're living in a society where they cannot agree with the values of the society and, but they will suffer discrimination. You either, either you agree with it or you suffer the consequences, you see, because your freedom of religion doesn't extend to that extent. Uh, you see what I'm saying? And these are real issues that are liable to hit us much more in the future 
um, than they have ever done in the past. And people just don't realize this yet because it hasn't happened yet on a large scale. Uh, but in the next generation, you know, I wouldn't be at all surprised uh, if, uh, you know, church people find um, that they are discriminated against and churches are discriminated against in this kind of way because they're expected to live in a society whose value system um, you know, cannot accommodate them uh, in, in particular areas. Uh, and so we have to be very, very careful about this, you see, as to how this would work out. Um, anyhow, uh, I mean, the Holy Spirit has to give us the mind of Christ so that we see this sort of thing, we see this kind of issue, and don't just fall into it, fall into the way of the world um, without... Uh, without properly understanding uh, what God wants and who God is. These courses provide a glimpse into our academic programs. Knox students can take one-week or semester-length courses in person at our South Florida campus or choose to complete a degree entirely online. By bringing together academic excellence, a vibrant community of learning, and flexible scheduling, Knox offers today's students timeless truth through modern convenience. For more information about earning credit toward a master's degree, please visit our website at knoxseminary.edu.